Good morning. We're going to start by singing number 30 in Sing the Journey, your green book. Welcome to chapel. This morning, we are thinking about epics or eras in life, the ups and downs we face, and the people we meet. As we see the Christ lamp this morning, let us think of the ways that we have been inspired or discouraged, joyful or downtrodden, alert with energy, or slumped in exhaustion. Let us recognize these stories of life in one another as we engage in passing the peace. The year, the year that I moved to Goshen in 1997, I was pastoring a small Mennonite church that was working at um, building bridges between people coming from different economic stratas. And a number of college students started coming, and one of those college students was Jana Bowman at that point. And I was impressed by Jana's um, keen intellect <laughs> and her passion for life and for all that was yet to come. Little did I know what all that would be, but it has been a joy to watch and to hear about Jana, who is now Jana, Jana Hunter Bowman, and she's not gonna talk about how she met her husband, but I'll tell you, it was on a service trip to Chiapas, Mexico, while she was in college, but then they reacquainted years later, anyhow. But time that, between that time, in, um, when Jana graduated from Goshen College in 2000, and now, 
there's been a lot of water under the bridge, lots of experiences, but the essence of Jana is the same, and that, that is one of the things that I appreciate. She has spent time working on the border as a paralegal. She's spent time working in Colombia with Justapaz uh, and Witness for Peace, uh, both through Mennonite Central Committee, spent time in Washington, D.C. With, with Witness for Peace, spent time, a little bit of time, uh, doing a master's degree very quickly. Um, she even taught at Goshen College for a little bit of time in, the, in there. And she is now finishing her PhD in peace studies and theology, integrating those two at Notre Dame. And my understanding is that she has been hired also by Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminaries, which was a great move on their part. Uh, Jana has uh, two daughters, uh, along with her husband, Jess, and they are a part of a neighborhood, an intentional neighborhood community um, called the Cana community, I believe in South Bend, and that is also a significant part of who she is. Now, Jana said, make sure that people know that that I don't normally talk so much about myself, but you asked me to. And so let me just say, I asked Jana to tell a pretty personal story about her experience, in particular its experience in Colombia. Um, so I would ask that you would, with uh, grace and kindness and anticipation, welcome Jana Hunter Bowman. It's a real honor and privilege to be here today. And I have, I was a Goshen College student, so I know this is a wonderful place, and it's, it's really fun to be back with you this morning. Um, so I'm here to tell you a story of my own life journey and faith journey. In my journey, when I reach the end of myself, I need the beloved community to be whole, stay alive, and stay sane. I learned through experiences that security and power are relational. New possibilities are born amidst brokenness when I participate in the beloved community. Now, I'm gonna to try to, I am, just going to tell you some stories to circle into these truths. Otherwise, they sound like these obtuse theoretical vagaries, right? My earliest memories involve my parents' service assignment in the projects of Louisiana and with the Homa indigenous. Soon after that, we participated in an intentional community in Ohio's coal-producing Appalachia. These chapters shaped my imagination in my childhood. It wasn't much of a surprise, at least to my parents, when I went to Columbia after college to participate in the life of the radical Mennonites there. During the years of 2001 to 2004, and then again 2006-2010, I worked with victims of Columbia's protracted armed conflict through Mennonite Central Committee. Columbia's armed conflict pits the guerrilla on one side against the paramilitary and the military on the other, and then the civilians are caught in the crossfire. They suffer from structural violence, which released various forms of direct or open violence, like bloodletting. Both factors contribute to an increasingly fragmented society. With all these factors, the legacy of trauma passed down from generation to generation is very significant. I'm incredibly impressed with this. We haven't talked ahead of time, and she's just going as I go. This is amazing. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. 
so the violence is localized in Colombia. Men who killed your husband and was your student now lives next door to you. That's a very different kind of situation of international conflict than I think we're often taught about when we think about the world wars. This is a very different age of conflict in what we're experiencing contemporarily. Internal displacement in Colombia is very high. Only Syria has more internal refugees at this point, and of course in Iraq, the number is also very high. Through relationships developed through church and work with Hustapaz, Military targets and internally displaced were not only statistics in the human rights reports I was writing, but they were guests at my dinner table. They are dear friends whose lives have shaped my journey, and they are the people to whom I consider myself very much accountable now in my intellectual work at Notre Dame. So here's one of the first lessons I mentioned, the relationship on breaking and re-becoming whole in community. I journaled in those first years about the experience of being broken by that place of Columbia and re-becoming thanks to her people. I was a very earnest 24-year-old, full of passion, ready to sacrifice, and eager to be a part of the solution. So then in the first months, I was so overwhelmed and rather insulted when Peter Stuckey, who was then the president of the Columbian Mennonite Church, said to me, as we were walking home from church and where I was working was the office right by the church, we were walking back to the neighborhood where we both lived one day, and I said to him, Peter, I see that everyone here is so deeply engaged. Everyone is constantly operated in crisis mode, overwhelmed. They don't have enough sleep. It's as if they live in pressure cookers, and as soon as they leave this country and go outward, we know they're going to explode. And yet, I still feel very external to this in some way, even though I'm physically present. So let me help you. I want to be present with you. I want to be helping you. And he had the audacity to, did I say, laugh at me. He laughed at me. And he said to me, Jana, this is some months in, right, Jana? After you've been here a year, then you can start asking about what your particular role is or how you might be present but it will take some time. It's embarrassing now, but I think I actually believed that I could help make a turn towards sustained transformation in Colombia. Paradoxically, I had to reach the end of my own capacities before I could actually participate. To some degree, I had to be broken and re-become before I could be present. It took a couple of years, and it occurred not in a dramatic shattering, but through the accumulation of the weight of sadness, incomprehension, anger, full self-immersion into things that I could not understand, much less fix. The accumulation of experiences that the self who arrived on that plane could not bear is what broke me. It happened through relating to the people that I met through Justa Paz, life in the local community where I lived, and travel into the rural countryside where the communities are most hard hit by the violence. One experience is with Kimi. Kimi was a, one of the foremost leaders of the indigenous movement who was resisting a dam that was a hydroelectric dam that was supported by the Colombian government in the northwest part of the country. And in order to, to um, put this dam in, they needed to 
clear the land. Clear the land in Colombia means to forcibly, through violence, displace people off their land. That happens through massacring them and killing them, and so that some are dead and no longer a problem, and others flee in terror. That's what you call clear, that's clearing the land. Limpiar la tierra. Um, so, upon the request of the organizers, so he was then, he was killed. Kimi was, well, he was disappeared. Kimi, this very important leader, was disappeared. That just means all of a sudden, he's gone. So upon the request of organizers, I accompanied a march of thousands of indigenous from around the country who were walking from paramilitary stronghold to paramilitary stronghold looking for their disappeared leader. Later we learned that with each day we marched, they tortured him and removed an additional finger or limb or toe. With situations like these, I reached the end of myself. My capacities and frameworks for comprehending and understanding were insufficient. I learned instead that I was given the risking privilege, the risky privilege of walking alongside. This is affirmed by Hector. Hector Mondragon is a Colombian economist who was being tortured around the time I was being born. And since then, he's had to um, move often from home to home and from bed to bed at night. Um, and I was translating for him once for a delegation. He often spoke to delegations that came down from North America. And um, I, was, I thanked him for sharing his testimony and for continuing to take the risk of speaking, even what, in light of what he'd already experienced. And he looked at me quizzically and he said, well, Jana, obviously it's just a matter of time until you have the same kind of consequences. I was like, what are you talking about? That is wild and a ridiculous thing to say. And then this breaking and this coming to the end of myself was reflected also in my dream world. I had dreams of hopelessness that left me literally physically bruised and emotionally spent. I had a lot of dreams of death. In the human rights reports I was working on, I would work into the night until I just saw blood coming down the stream, and that's when I knew I had to stop for the night because I couldn't see anything. In Putumayu, in the epicenter of um, the implementation of Plan Colombia, which was this multi-billion dollar aid package, uh, military aid package the United States was supplying to Colombia, um, I, I was regularly going down and working with churches and local communities and looking into the ways in which the US-sponsored military package was impacting these communities. And remember one time, I was on the plane coming back, I saw my reflection in the window, and I didn't even recognize myself. My face was just um, despondent. I looked so incredibly sad. I just thought, who is that person? <laughs> what is going on here? The weight of the burdens were overpowering sometimes. It crushed me, and I felt undone. But I also knew I could trust myself to this beloved community. In important and enduring ways, it remade me in its likeness. And it was through relationships that I was remade. Entrusting myself to the community allowed this group of people to become my beloved community and for me to know myself as beloved in it. Loida, my host mom, taught me Spanish and to not take myself so seriously. In Yuma, a small intentional group, we, sim we, sim we simply sat together in silence because sometimes what was happening was unspeakable and there were no words and there are no words. We are critically shaped, and now this is my reflection and what I learned of this. We are critically shaped by those who help us interpret when we come to the end of ourselves and hold us 
when we become undone. My point here is that breaking and re-becoming is relational. This breaking and remaking allowed for subsequent developments. And here's another point that I mentioned first, early on. I need the beloved community to stay alive. So my physical security is relational. I learned this through travel to hot zones. I traveled frequently to active conflict zones during my years there, Research on the impact of Plan Columbia, and then later directing a political violence and peace monitoring project required it. It was utterly exhausting. People's livelihoods were decimated under the auspices of the US war on drugs. Heart-wrenching, both through death and with the inward turning that comes with living amidst terror, and at the very core of my call to accompaniment. So you ask, pray tell, how does a 20-something white woman do that? It's not through bodyguards or through weapons. This was only through, the re through relationships with local communities. And here now is a story of a break-in. In situations of protracted armed conflict like Columbia, being for others and confronting death means risk. In multiple ways, the Colombian church communities challenge and unveil the forces that splinter, deceive, kill, and traumatize. The war machine seeks to break anything that challenges it. A common strategy is committing an act of violence that sows terror and so splinters groups and communities. By the army's logic, they need to fray social fabric so they can operate more freely. In 2007, two computers that we used in Hustapas were stolen. This was not a common crime, but rather a political theft. One of the computers held the most sensitive information about churches across the country working for peace. This peace and justice work often put them at odds with the armies. The other computer was mine. It contained information about abuses committed and the sources of the information that I had gathered over the last year and a half. Only later did we learn that government intelligence was paying for the information and so encouraging burglaries like this one. A short trip to the US had interrupted my task of transferring the information from my computer that was on the hard drive to a, a safe system in the cloud with multiple firewalls. Jess, my husband, and colleagues from Hustapaz called me from Columbia while I was in, here in the US to tell me from the crime scene what had happened. I was terrified and filled with self-loathing for failing to complete the information transfer. I had visions of people being tracked down and systematically killed across the country. The experience shook our community and the Hustapaz staff. Hustapaz, if I haven't explained, is the Colombian Mennonite Peace and Justice Organization where I worked during my time in Colombia. So we wondered, what should we do? When you realize that not only are others chased like rabbits by hunters, but that perhaps you are too, what do you do? Shall we run? Would we leave? Should we stay in our homes and find other kinds of work and pretend like we are someone else? What, what exactly was happening? What was going to happen next? We did not know, and we were scared. Where do we go to find the resources to handle situations that rupture our sense of what is normal and what you could possibly expect? 
As the fragmented societies of protracted armed conflicts illustrate, the tendency is to turn increasingly inwards into smaller and smaller groups. And as I've mentioned, this is the strategy of the armed groups. If people are a bunch of atomized individuals too mistrustful to relate, if they are too scared to reach out to one another in love, to open a clenched fist and take someone else's hand, to share their stories or reweave social fabric together, then the powers of death have an open field in which to work. Turning inward affirms and reinforces the power of the gun, the death threat, the logic of war and violence. Even if you know that to be true on a cognitive level, which I did because I studied peace studies at Goshen College, how do you confront it? How do unarmed civilians confront this power? How do you live into an alternative power in moments like these? What does it mean to claim the power of the cross in these situations? You know the answer to these questions. It is built into the politics of being church, at least the project in which I most want to participate. When two or three are gathered, it begins small, very small. But when we gathered as a Hustapaz community, the fear that threatens to colonize our imagination and ties our own bodies could not hold its grip. All the members of Hustapaz said, we are not leaving. We did not flee. We did not stay in our homes behind locked doors. We showed up. We came together. We gathered. We lamented. We prayed. Paradoxically, this did not secure our immediate future, but it did allow for life. It was a stance of defiance, refusal to allow the forces that splinter relationships, community, and society to control us. This bodily response allowed for a regeneration of power. I learned in this situation, as I probably should have figured out by observing people all throughout Colombia years before, I learned that power and vulnerability coexist. This explains why I need the beloved community to be whole and to stay safe. In this experience with the break-in, I felt in my very body the power of relationships. We didn't show up by calling one another on the phone. We showed up by physically gathering together. This is the power that comes with moving from brokenness into the beloved community. Of course, this is what armies try to destroy. This is why they splinter communities. We can live into an alternative power, we discovered through doing it. For Hustapas, our vantage point changed in doing just this. We discovered that we were not destroyed. In fact, we were powerful. Once we reunited, we quickly engaged. That is one level on which power and new possibilities were generated in coming together. Simultaneously, and on a very different level, I would learn complementary lessons about relationality and power. Now, is Keith Gaber Miller here?
I don't see Keith. But I will say that I am not the sexpert. Keith, we all know Keith is the expert. But I venture to say from experience that there is a relational dimension to sexuality as well. Intertwined with this story is the conception of our first child. My husband and I conceived our first child some weeks after the attack. My experience of pregnancy is intertwined with intense response to the attack. I was first very confident that I was pregnant when I sat in Carlos Franco's office. He was the director of the president's human rights office, and he's a chain smoker. So I sat there in his office with a bunch of other NGOs because Hustapaz was one of a number of NGOs that was tracking political violence that experienced information thefts of this kind. So we gathered, we organized together, we organized a campaign, and we went and we talked to Carlos. Well, sitting beside Carlos as someone, as someone who's a few weeks pregnant, I just, I thought I was going to vomit on him. That's how I knew I was pregnant. And then there was the time when I was meeting, then months later when I was very visibly pregnant, I went with the, 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 one of the directors of Hustapaz to funding meetings, because funders were very concerned about what was happening. And they always like to ask, well, how's everyone doing in Hustapaz? How are you dealing with this? And so this is what Amparo did. Oh, you don't know how we're dealing with the attack and the stress? Have you seen Jana? Mm -hmm. This is how we deal with the stress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It was utterly confounding to me. On this most intimate level of relationality, new life was conceived in love and defiance of the forces that wanted to turn us inward in fear and isolation. It was actually a very similar lesson. But by this time, I was well aware of the simultaneity of power and human fragility. You see, this was not the woman who went to Columbia some six years before. For months, I lived with a sense of near certainty that this baby within me would not survive. She would be swept away in a torrent of blood like so many other lives. I would miscarry. But I hoped, and we hoped, both in responding to the attack and this fragile life within, I struggled for life. Our little baby was exposed to a lot in the womb as we responded to the attacks. Tension was high. Bizarre phone, call, phone calls began shortly thereafter. The voice let me know that I was being followed. It was threatening, and it became the norm. The power struggle was nearly palpable. So we took different routes home from work each day. I don't know if other expectant mothers do this, but I talked to my little sparkle. That's what I called her. She became my companion. Jess and I gave birth to her with the help of a midwife in our home. This was a hugely empowering experience. Death didn't win. And our daughter, Amara, was with us. Her name in Spanish means, you shall love, Amara. For me, in this context, her name was a statement of faith. It was a confession of what I was discovering to be true and the way the world works. The experience of conceiving, birthing, and mothering the tiny babe opened up a whole new universe. In association with the regrouping of Hustapas after the break-in, I did not only see through the lens of assassinations, kidnappings, rape, threats, and fear, I saw that new life and new possibilities were bristling everywhere. So do you see? Power and new life come from anywhere when two are gathered. Power comes from refusing to be autonomous individuals that 
forces of violence need to exert control. When people came together, new possibilities and new life emerge. When we give our sacred yes with bodies to God's purposes, death does not have the last word. What I've said is not only true for me in Columbia. It's not only true in remote and exotic locations. We all reach the end of ourselves in daily life. It comes sooner or later, but it comes. When we do not, when, when we do not know how to reconcile what is happening with our sense of identity and the way the world works, we reach the end of ourselves. This happens not only in war zones, but with the death of a child, situations of abuse, disappointment in relationships of different kinds, abandonment of different kinds, deep disappointments in, in ourselves and others, different experiences that traumatize. Think of what people undergo in prisons, in gangs, in loneliness on the streets. Think of what some are experiencing on this campus. At the very beginning, I mentioned we need each other to stay sane. Here in the US, I have reached the end of myself and have again had to res resist the urge to flee, this time to the security of Columbia. The ability to live sanely after a traumatic experience of pain is always dependent on the response of others. Here too, the beloved community helps keep me sane and stay whole. So I say again, in my journey, when I reach the end of myself, I need the beloved community to stay whole, stay sane, and stay safe. I learn through these experiences that security and power are relational. New possibilities are born amidst brokenness in the beloved community. So may it be. Thank you so much. Um, we'd like to take a moment to just pray and to reflect about um, who has been there for you? Who have you encountered in a time when you've reached the end of yourself that's been there to pick you up and that God has really used? Because it's when we have been reaching the end, when we have reached the end of ourselves that God can really take that time to mold us and to turn us, um, to use us into his, for his purposes. And so we'd really like to take uh, this time to reflect and to really pray and thank God for those people who have been there for us and uh, to help us really be there for others who are reaching the end of themselves. And so we invite you to come up and to um, light a candle and place it here in one of these um, little bowls.
May you go with the awareness of God's love present within you and throughout your relationships, driving away fears, creating new life, and sustaining you. May the love of God go with you and enable you to be the church, the beloved community. Go and do not give death the final word.